Welcome to Order Up, the restaurant operations podcast brought to you by Ops Analytica. You know that scene at the beginning of Office Space where Peter comes into work and all his bosses are coming over and they're giving him the riot act about not putting the proper cover letters on his TPS reports. And he's going, no, no, I fixed the problem and no one's listening to him. Well, that is the perfect analogy for how so many of us get coached in our businesses. You know, especially hard in the multi-unit world because you're not always working with the same people. And if you're above store leader, you're not always in the location. And so, so often coaching goes from something that's meant to develop an employee, to invest in an employee, to raise them up. And, and show them love and loyalty, it then turns into this situation where you're just focusing on their last mistake, right? But Ops Analytica has a way to solve that. We track all the metrics on your employees, how well they're doing their job, how organized they are, how they may or may not understand certain aspects of their position. And you can use that data to effectively coach and invest in your employees to make them better, okay? Data-driven coaching is the wave of the future. It doesn't rely on their last mistake or what other people think of them. It's a true measure of how well they're doing and your employees will love you for it. Check us out at opsanalytica.com. Hey there, Order Up Show podcast listeners. Quick message from uh, me, your host, Tommy. New episodes are going to start dropping on Wednesdays weekly, okay? So look for new episodes uh, starting on Wednesday. What up there, Order Up Show? It's Tommy, and I'm back with another interview. Yay! Hey, please welcome to the show, Peter Van Gurp. How you doing, Peter? I'm doing great, Tommy. I appreciate you having me on today, buddy. Oh, Thank you so much for coming on. Peter's uh, calling in today from Edmonton, Alberta, I believe. Is that correct, Peter? That's right. The great city of Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. Nice. Well, welcome to the show. We, uh, we've had people from all around the world. Uh, South Africa, India, Canada, obviously. We've had a couple people from Canada. So we have a very international flair here on the Order Up show. And... Uh, so, Peter, here's the deal with the show. We ask the same five questions, though, as I said earlier, I'm adding a sixth question to that list uh, to every guest that comes on. So let's get started with number one. Explain what you do today, then take us through your career progression from your first job until now. Yeah, no, that's that's great. I have the pleasure of being the chief operating officer for the Canadian Brew House, the Banquet Premium Bar, uh, Dive Bar, and we also have other kind of concepts that we created we're in the midst of doing it's called the ice house and it's going to be located in the ice district in edmonton um it's 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 probably one of the best jobs hands down i've I've ever had um and this is something that we had to move from the u.s to uh to, to move to canada to to take on and Fortunately for us, Tommy, we're a hockey family, and nice. uh, it, was, it was an easier transition. You know, my son is 17. He's actually playing juniors in Las Vegas right now. Nice. Uh, but, uh, yeah, we came up to Canada for, for that opportunity and, and to help and grow. And, and I was charged with growing 200 restaurants in 10 years. So no, no simple task. For yeah. sure. But I started my career really in the hospitality industry. It's always been pursuant to academic studies. You know, it's, it's probably the best industry to work in if you're, if you're in school. 
Um, I was on a soccer scholarship. I paid D1 down at Mercy University my first couple of years out and ended up moving back to Texas, finished up at the University of Tennessee, and my plan was to go to law school. Um, and then I got sidetracked and moved to uh, Orlando to work at the Grand Cypress Academy of Golf and see if I can make a run at being a golf pro. Uh, that didn't work out well. Uh, I think all my all the guys that I worked with in the past have said, look, you've got a bit of a niche here, man. You've got fit your personality. It's really good money. You, you've got your degree and you might want to think about doing this and not going to law school. And I was like, you know what? I might do that. And, and I did. My first management position was at a place called the Ocean Key House in Key West, Florida, right on Zero Duval Street. Just a phenomenal property. Uh, we had a, a we seen about 600 people on our, our patio deck out. Everybody floods out, to watch the sunset. It was awesome. It was great. But I, I love about, Wall Street. Oh, love man. So much fun and so much history. But but I, I really kicked off my corporate career with TGI Fridays back in 98. Um, joined the organization. I was with, with Fridays for about a total of about 10 years. I took a bit of a hiatus and partnered up with a few of my, my buddies and, and brother, and we opened restaurants uh, down in Florida in Navarre Beach, it was called Copendries. Um, and they had a couple of restaurants in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, it was a Southern Louisiana cuisine. And, and that was really my first taste of ownership. And, and I think you're, if you're on a career path of leadership, being responsible for, for paying other people's bills is, is uh, quite humbling. You, you, sometimes you have to make a decision to pay them and not yourself. Uh, but I think that really kind of scoped my my perception on on leadership and particularly in the industry. And after Friday's buddy, I went with Red Robin. I was a regional operations director with them for about three years, three and a half years. Um, left and and took on a position with Steak and Shake for a couple of years. And and that was really my my first dipping my toe into fast casual, if you will. Sure. Uh, it's I'll, I'll tell you, I, you learn so much when you really chase pennies to make dollars, quite frankly. And when you have a check average of about $6.51, your margins are, are paper thin. And it just forces you to be, I don't know if micromanagement's the word uh, that we look at, just very attention to detail oriented. Um, and and, and that, that served me well for a couple of years and ended up transitioning over. I went to, I'm originally from Dallas, Texas, born and raised, and I had an opportunity to uh, be a vice president of operations for Spaghetti Warehouse, which I knew really, really well growing up in Dallas. And their original was downtown. And yeah, that was a hell of an experience. Ended up being the COO of, of uh, Spaghetti Warehouse. And uh, we took on, expanded a bit, bought Stir Crazy and Flat Top Grill and took over those concepts as well. And, and uh, yeah, that was my first taste of multi-concept leadership at that point. Um, and then, yeah, my career was there for a couple of years, three, almost three years, and then transitioned uh, back to Atlanta, partnered up with, uh, with a local restaurant guy there. And we, we opened a restaurant called Bocado Burger in Avalon, just a phenomenal place, great vibe. Uh, really, if you're a hipster, that's where you'd want to hang out is the sure. best way I can explain it. We had a bocce court out there. It was just a, just a beautiful property. Um, and and then I ended up uh, working with Blue Ribbon Holdings with uh, O'Charlie's as the regional vice president. So I uh, was there for a couple of years and then this opportunity posed itself. Uh, they were looking for a COO that has grown brands and had uh, some experience leading teams and expanding out in multiple directions. And, and this is 
this this is a, a concept that's been around for about 18 years at the time and two local guys that had an idea and a concept of building this out and over the past 18 years did a phenomenal job of creating and cultivating a culture um, like none other and a, an experience like none other. You can go to sports bars all across the U.S. You can go to BJ's, Buffalo Wild Wings, just to name a couple. But the Canadian Brew House is just such a unique environment. And if you're a sports fan, the best way I can explain it to me, it's like, it's like working every day in a man cave. Yeah, nice. But, right? But, but the people serving me in our restaurants are far better than the ones serving me in my man cave in my house. And the beer selection is a lot better. But, you know, we really kind of pride ourselves on a couple of things. And, and one is beer selection. That's one thing. But the other one really is we probably have the best patios in North America, hands down large prototypes where we were 18 years ago to what the concept is now is night and day and uh you know our newest project that i mentioned was the ice house that's a 44,000 square foot three concept building uh that's that's there's not there's nothing like it in north america uh, and it's really exciting to take the leadership on that so yeah, my career progression was pretty quick. It's almost one step to the next step to the next step. I've been so blessed and fortunate to be surrounded by great leadership in my career. Um, great mentors that have looked out for me, brought me under their wing, taught me the right things to do and how to make proper decisions and, and never lose sight of what's important. And that's your people, you know, so I've had a great career so far. Buddy. That's awesome. You know what I thought was interesting in your career progression is that you bounce from ownership to back to corporate to ownership back to corporate and i don't hear that very often people either seem to go you know corporate 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 then they own for and then they own 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 or they do vice versa right but not i don't know too many people that have done a little bit of both and i think that's a really important i think that would be it's a really important skill set that you you get you garnered for yourself because so many people especially like you know you work for a big corporate franchisor, for instance, right? You yeah. forget what it's like to actually own a restaurant. You know what I mean? Like you having to make payroll, like you have backing, you have accountants and lawyers and all these resources. And you sometimes people, I think at some of these big franchisors specifically lose sight of what it's like to own a restaurant. You know what I mean? And like that you're actually out there making food and selling it to get money in here. You know what I mean? hundred percent. You know, it's interesting you bring that up, Tommy. If it's different when you're the one writing the check, right? And selfishly, I'd rather spend somebody else's money, quite frankly. <laughs> but it teaches you to be a good steward of someone else's money. And, yeah. and I truly believe that, you know, when we choose this industry, we're, we're self-selecting these servants. That's what we do. We're either serving the guest or serving someone who's serving the guest. You've probably heard that a thousand times. But it couldn't rain more truer now in our industry. And I think when you when you bring an ownership perspective to the table, there's a balance of understanding and operations as a COO. My job is to get it done. I'm not always the guy that's uh, making the decisions on the creative component of where we're going. My job typically is here's where we'd like to go. Here's the directive. How do we get it done? And that's yep. where I sit. Right. I can have input, but ultimately, you know, 
when our ownership group says this is the direction we want to go it's my job to say all right let's pull the resources let's figure out how we can do this and what what's it going to cost what's the investment financially investment of time uh human capital sweat equity all that good stuff all it all matters and listen uh, we we <laughs> what's interesting about our initiatives what's going on now is that we're we're planning on growing 14 restaurants in less than 10 months cross provincial we just opened our first restaurant in ontario about six weeks ago in oshawa we're opening our second in barry in three weeks wow. we're opening victoria on the island um uh, which is which is an interesting I never realized there's 300,000 people living in victoria but it's it's actually a pretty big place to go and, and, and we're across from Manitoba all the way through Saskatchewan, Alberta, and in British Columbia. We will dip our toe into the U.S. That's another reason that they were looking for leadership coming out of the U.S. But um, I think the landscape needs to stabilize. The landscape needs to normalize a bit before we entertain that. Well, yeah, and I mean, you know, yeah, just let the U.S. figure itself out. <laughs> because... <laughs> We're just, you know, we're, the government needs to do all the garbage they're about to do. And then we maybe will be able to uh, figure ourselves out a little bit better. It seems yeah. like they open stuff, especially with like, you know, what are we going to do with masks? And, you know, are we going to lock down again and blah, blah, blah. And all BS. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, I don't know. They, uh, well, that's cool, man. So these these sports bars you guys are running, they're huge properties, and they're man. When you say there's a man cave, you got sofas in them. Is that what you're saying, or are they just? Um, no, you, what the decor and, and I don't. Tommy, it'd be great to go on site and, and just look at it, some of the pictures and what we do in our builds. But oh, I was looking, but I didn't see it. Oh, but it's when you walk inside, we have 65 flat screen TVs, 90 inch. We have scoreboards over. Um, every bar is so four-sided, 90-inch. Below that, 42s that that, that are circular around the base. Uh, 30 draft tap systems, multi-levels. Upstairs, our patios typically seat anywhere from 160 to 250 people. Uh, our interior seat anywhere from 300 to 450. Some of our newer locations have bowling alleys in the basements with an additional bar. So we're running three bars. We could seat up to 700 people, but when you walk in in the decor, you might have one wall that is that has it's a wall of Stanley Cups, right? Uh, and every, every team's represented. Uh, every uh, another wall might be NFL helmets where every team is represented. A wall of jerseys, um, and 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 I think what's really important to being a Canadian-based company, it's it's very important to recognize Canadian heritage. Sure. And so we have an Anukshuk outside of every restaurant we have totem poles inside of every restaurant we have a canoe that is that is positioned and hung from from the ceiling in every location it's so unique what we do some of our locations like out in cochran we're so close to to banff and and the in the canadian rockies yeah we have you know as instead of having just railings around and most of our restaurants those are hockey sticks that are our, our railings are made of we might have make them with skis you know, if, if that's the case, we're looking at opening a location in Banff. Hopefully that deal can get done. But that would be another location that caters solely to that genre. We have bobsleds and all kinds of stuff. But if you're a sports fan, you, you couldn't find a better place to come and watch your sport. Well, and I found on the careers page, I found some uh, good images. So while you were chatting, I was looking at them. Yeah, they look beautiful. 
they they absolutely look beautiful. I like the big glass walls that 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 kind of protect you from the weather on those rooftop patios. They look cool. Yeah, the nano walls are great. And in the one leverage, but it's really interesting you bring that up, Tommy, because when I, I didn't know anything about the Canadian brew house when I was recruited, and I came up, it's kind of a funny story. I, I came up to to interview. They flew me in. Uh, this was on a on a Wednesday night. I was interviewing, or Wednesday afternoon. I was set to interview at nine the next morning on Thursday, and then fly out on Friday. And so, knowing me, I'm not going to sit in a hotel and eat bonbons all day, right? Yeah. So I just rented a car and started hitting the market. I started visiting restaurants, and it was really interesting in my progression because I started at one of the original restaurants, um, one here on Ellerslie, but downtown. Downtown's been around for almost 20 years, and so. I hit that restaurant, hit a few, one of our franchisees hit their restaurant out in Sherwood Park. And then I was coming back and the VP of HR called me up and said, hey, man, what are you, what are you doing tonight? And I was like, well, I, I'm, I'm in this restaurant on 97th Street. I don't know where that is, but I'm, I think it's on the north side. He's like, oh, yeah, you're, what are you doing? I was like, I'm, I'm visiting restaurants. He goes, oh, well, you got to meet me at uh, Lewis Estates. This is one of our newest builds. We've, it's only six months old. I was like, yeah, absolutely. So I go out to the newest estates and the sheer size, magnitude, and the attention to detail is unlike anything I'd seen. And when I say attention to detail, when you talk about branding, branding is so critically important. Our, our cutlery is, uh, our knife is a hockey stick. Our, uh, I mean, I'm sorry, our, our fork is a hockey stick and our knife is a golf club and our spoons are baseball bats, right? And yeah. it's, it's so unique and they're engraved yeah, every every place, every touch point that you see, you see Canadian brew house, and that's by design. And and that I just thought was just absolutely incredible and very intuitive. And and when you go in and you see it, it's you know the ceilings are twenty feet high and it's packed. The one thing I noticed, Tommy, which floored me, fifty percent of the clientele base in this restaurant were female. Really, girls out with girls. Yeah. yeah. Like it, it wasn't ladies night out with ladies night. It was, I looked around and the amount of, uh, the amount of female to male ratio just floored me, you know, and, and that's just the reputation that this brand has cultivated over the last 18 to 20 years. So it was really exciting to be a part of it and, and be a part of the growth. And look, I, I don't know of another concept that's growing as aggressively as we are, but yeah, this is, this is probably coming out of COVID. If, if you've positioned yourself right, Yep. And you've you've really protect cash flow over the last two years. There are AAA sites available yep. at bargain prices, and uh, you know one of our owners, Roger Newton, is hands down one of the best at identifying sites, understanding and seeing future potential, future revenue, but also is just very very creative. Uh, in his approach. And, and it's, it's such a pleasure to work with these guys. I tell you, I couldn't, I couldn't be happier. That's really cool. Yeah. yeah. And I totally agree with you too. You know, not everybody got their teeth kicked in during COVID, right? Like if you were, if you had the right technology in place, you had already had ordering, you had already had, you know, curbside, you know, you could, you could, some people thrived during COVID, you know what I mean? And like you said, if you protected your cash flow. And, and you, you did yourself right. You're, the, the amount of real estate right now that's out there, it's mind-boggling. People who just, you know, too much on their original bill, didn't have the stuff in place, you know, next thing you know, they're out. And you can go grab their building and change it into something amazing. So cool. Yeah. 
I, I couldn't agree more. Well, and I'll tell you that the, the thing about uh, off-premise is it's a little tricky. Oh, you know, okay. I've worked with concepts that you know, being from Texas, Chili's is, is based out of there, obviously. And Darden and Brinker both do a really good job with off-premise curbside. And one of the leaders in the industry from casual dining, leader in the industry in that segment. And so there, it, there's, a, there's a lot out there to take from, but we don't make a tremendous amount of margin on off-premise sales. Sure, of course. It, right. And and here at Skip, Skip the Dishes in Canada, um, Uber Eats, Postmates, wherever you are in the U.S., it's regional as well. But the, the challenge with paying not just the fees uh, to be a, a participant, I mean, Skip Skip the Dishes is really a logistics company. I mean, you're, you're paying for the platform. You're not necessarily paying for the delivery service. But in this case, you're you're paying somewhere up to 20, 25 percent, depending on what kind of volume you're doing. And just fees, right? Yeah. Um, and then you have the added cost of to-go supplies, which all of our to-go supplies are branded. And there's an added expense for that as well. And and so your margin just gets eaten away, getting eaten away and getting eaten away. Well, we make money with butts and seats. Yeah. You know, we're, we're being a sports bar. There's not a tremendous amount of draft beer being sold on Skip the Dishes. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. Fortunately, you know, the, the governments have, have – making it made special disposition to allow to sell liquor off premise which has tremendously helped but certainly doesn't help the margin side you, you just can't escape the fees but i think when you look at a good a healthy balance of off premise to on premise it's certainly something it's incremental sales at the end of the day yeah. right that, that's when you're operating in normal capacity when you're not and you're only curbside the biggest hit is not just the margin it's it's the amount of people that are required to run your operation dramatically decreases and our number one goal through this whole process for the last two years has been keep as many people employed as possible sure. that's been our number one goal is to keep as many people employed subsidies are helping in some of that because subsidies are up end of october i think it's the 23rd or 25th subsidies uh, at this point haven't been renewed hopefully that that'll change but there's a tremendous burden uh, on the teams to be able to execute off-premise sales and but it's a way of life. It's never going to go back. Yeah. Uh, there's never going to be a time where you just don't do delivery in the future. Yeah. The landscape, the, the restaurant, in, our industry's landscape has changed forever. Yeah. And, and yeah, I feel like the biggest challenge too is throttling. Well, another challenge with off-prem is just throttling. Like, you know, what happens if you do get slammed on a Tuesday and then, you know, all of a sudden you get another, and then before you even have a chance to blink your eyes, 10 or 15 orders for come in on delivery and now you you know your tickets are like off the off the rail and you're just like ah you know what i mean like yeah well that's the that's yeah that's a great point tommy because you everyone's biting for business at this point and and i'll just speak of the canadian landscape and i'm sure it's happening in the states it happened in the states three years ago when i was there but you have multiple platforms that are buying for your business, whether it's Uber Eats, DoorDash, or Skip the Dishes. And I think we've had to be very strategic in how we wanted to approach this. Uh, it's I'm not I'm not of the mindset that um, more is better. I'm of the mindset that actually less is more. I've seen the success that we've had, you know, in the last couple of in these last years, 28% of our revenue has been generated off premise. My expectation is that we'll normalize at about 12 to 14%. Well, that's still that's still close to twenty eight million dollar in off premise revenue. So, 
when I look at that kind of volume that we're doing, and we're one of skips, particularly in our industry, we're, we're one of the top accounts for those guys. If we diversify and bring in two more platforms, what does that do to execution operations? And so I just look at my staff and go, do we have the capacity? Do we have the bandwidth to absorb multi-platforms? I might be 30 pages off screen and skip alone with a full dining room that's 700 people, yeah. right? And it's like no the answer is no we're not we're not gonna we're not gonna do that because we're gonna put out a substandard product we can't execute within the timelines and we essentially just let our guest base down and over overstress our staff and that's it's just not worth it um i'd rather you come and see and be a part of the vibe and the environment because the culture the culture that we've created is unlike any other culture vps can't duplicate it browns can't duplicate it uh, state and Maine can't duplicate it. And by the way, we're growing and, and those restaurants aren't. And there's a reason for that. And it's our people and our culture. And and sometimes you just got to draw a line in the sand, Tommy, and say we're not, although it might make top line sense, it doesn't make common sense. Sure. And I still don't I still don't think there's anything common about common sense, just so you know. <laughs> but I think you have to make a decision. And, and that's that's part of being a leader is to say, yeah, no. Um, I, I don't I don't think this the timing's right for us. Uh, let's take care of the of the brick and mortar. Let's take care of of the experience and let's take care of the staff and and uh, we're gonna limit what we do off premise. So I was on, I had a podcast interview yesterday with a, uh, another um, another chain down here, um, duck duck donuts. And oh, uh, cool. love and, and I was talking to her, but I and it's funny, it just this came up in two different things, but I wrote a blog like maybe two or three years ago. Like the picture on the blog is like Thelma and Louise, like driving off that cliff at the end, you know? <laughs> I, I always talk about like, you can market yourself off of a cliff, right? In the respect of if you open it up full bore, but then you can't deliver on the experience, then all you're doing is accelerating bad interactions with guests and your brand and they will, and then you're just, you think you're doing the right thing, but then really what you're doing is you're just pissing off a ton of people really quick that aren't gonna come back. And then six months from now, you'll start to see your sales dipping because so many people had so many bad experiences. The same thing happens too, a lot of times when the brand new restaurant opens up in town and you're there on opening day and they just fumble the ball because it's opening day, you know what I mean? And like, they're trying so hard, you know, I've, I've been there where we opened a PF Chang's one time at a mall in Broomfield, Colorado. And, you know, we were on like a two hour wait from the first minute and we were all brand new. Like it was our first day literally of taking orders and it was brutal. And, you know, we, I'm sure we pissed off a ton of people. You know what I mean? Like yeah. it's just, so it's like, sometimes you just, you know, it's better to drink from a water fountain than a fire hose, you know? Yeah. I, I agree. It's funny. I want to go back to something you just said about uh, one. I couldn't agree more. Uh, it, it's I look at the Chick-fil-A business model and Chick-fil-A does what Chick-fil-A does very, very well. They do it better than anybody else. Yeah. And and you, you have to understand and, and take a page out of that book and say, who do we want to be? By the way, if you're in business and you're expanding and you don't can't answer that question, you, you've got big problems. But who do we want to do? Well, who do we want to be and what do we do better than anybody else? Yeah. And that's the core of what will always be protected and whatever your short-term, long-term strategic planning is around, that has to be core, first and foremost. But a funny story, we lived in Columbus 
and they have a, a, a duck donuts in Powell. And my wife, it's so funny. We're in Canada. She's like, you know what we need? We need a duck donuts up here. I think I'm going to invest in a duck donuts. I was like, no, you're not. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're, no, 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 you're not. But it, it's really interesting because if, if your, if your clear focus is around quality and a balanced experience, you have to define that we have, we have 106 menu items. That is a tremendously large menu for a sports bar. And when you, when you go through all the options, one, it's a great leverage point. If you're looking at off-premise sales, because there's something for everybody. Sure. And that regard. also, if you're looking for on-premise sales, there's something for everybody. The challenge then becomes how well can you execute 106 menu items, right? Yeah. Friday. I think when I was with Fridays back in the nineties, we had 110 or 117, depending on different versions. And we scaled that down and thought 75 was about, or 80 was about the sweet spot that we could execute. And you always have your top 20 that you're going to execute anyway. What we don't want to do is just produce items to allow them to expire and throw them away. Right. And, yeah. and so I think that's the balance of skew analysis and, and sales. And the other side is brand loyalty. Uh, you, you, you spoke to, uh, with, with duck donuts, if you know, duck donuts, you're like, love that place. If you know, Chick-fil-A, which most people do, they love it, but they're loyal to the brand. We're in Ontario with our first restaurant. And no one's ever heard of us unless they've been out West. And this isn't my first time actually growing a West coast company East. That's exactly what we did with red Robin. I was based out of Nashville and mm -hmm. that's a West coast company based out of Colorado yeah. that moving that moved East and aggressively grew out east right and and so this isn't the first time i've done that in my career but you have to be very mindful of understanding there's other competitors in your market and so location is key locations location location but to your point the the, the time you open up and you're on a two-hour wait yeah you're you're exposing your brand to people and, and it's not the best of experiences so you you really have to be balanced soft openings i'm such a huge fan of soft openings um for that very reason i i just hired 85 servers yeah <laughs> i have 40 cooks uh line cooks and prep cooks and, and dishwashers and support staff we just hired a staff of 160 plus people and maybe four of them know the brand and and that's dangerous very dangerous uh, when you're exposing them to a to a, a market like you know the greater toronto area yeah it's nuts uh you know and yeah when you're expanding you really gotta hit home runs man expect you've got to get the first one in every market has got to be a home run or you just flounder in that market for years yeah. you know it, it is really I mean, that's, uh, I've talked about this on the podcast before too, but like PF Chang's one of the things that they did that I thought was really smart was they had that operating partner model where, you know, you would invest, like if you were, a G, you would be usually a, a top assistant manager or a GM of another store and they would let you buy in for like 25, 30 G's, yeah. like a five-year deal, you know, and yep. then so you, you would have that consistency of leadership at the beginning that could help steward through the first six months to a year when, you know, it's so hard, you know? Well, that's one of the reasons one of our owners is in Ontario opening those restaurants is for that very reason. And we recognize that early on is when you're going into markets that you, you know have amazing potential, we could easily open 70 restaurants in Ontario alone. Sure. Easily. 
And right now on the books, whether it's, we have, we have 14 sites with six sites confirmed with eight irons in the fire. Nice. And so one, a couple concerns, and there's one thing I, I think you'd mentioned earlier is whether our current projects, initiatives, whatever we're working on right now, there, there's two projects we're working on right now. Obviously we have an aggressive growth model, but we're also instituting, which I wish we would have done this about two years ago, because I think we'd be ahead of the curve is our, we partnered with Expo Tech, uh, which is owned by Joey. And um, we're moving to a tablet system, which is an integrated system with tablets and, a, um, and it's a, it's integrated payment with tablets. So we essentially what you're doing is your, your, your POS has been transposed and, and uh, configured onto a tablet, just an iPad, mm -hmm. but you have a payment system within that system as well, that allows you to not have to carry a, a separate eigen terminal around and you sure. know, don't put it right. It's just tap, stick, go super simple. And the reason that we're doing that, number one, there's so many advantages of being able to go to that system. Number one, just on the menu side of things, it, it gives you and allows the staff to prompt. So I'll give you an example. In a normal dining experience, you might have a server that walks to the table, greets, goes through the spiel, blah, 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 blah. And then they're writing everything down, right? And then what they do is they go from table to terminal, ring everything in, and then from terminal to kitchen or follow the path, goes to the bar, whatever it is, right? Well, you're missing opportunities unless the server's really, really good and understands how to upsell understands incremental sales influences their income might or might not it just you, you get a you kind of get a lackadaisical order taker right yeah. and so at this point we can we program our systems to prompt right poutine's really big up here so if you're getting a burger with fries do you want to upgrade your poutine so those incremental sales are critically important and what we've seen in the restaurants that we've instituted the systems we're up 13 percent Wow. Our check average is up 13%. And so some of our restaurants are a little bit older and we need to invest into the infrastructure, which we have. I think we've put over a million two in just infrastructure, buying equipment. And as you know, I mean, there's a chip shortage. So we, we really take, you know, our stance as an executive team is it's, you have some that, some that buy and invest for a couple of reasons. Um, some are, just in need like we need plateware we need glassware we're of the mindset of purchasing just in case just in case we can't there's a chip shortage and we can't purchase ipads that's going to stop this initiative for us cold in its tracks if we you know partner with cisco and we're in meraki and we're buying access points or port switches there's only so many of those being produced at a, at a given time and if we have 35 restaurants we're looking to convert we need to have the equipment so we can make sure that that initiative moves forward. And so we've taken this just in case mentality because one of the biggest things that we're faced with in our industry right now, buddy, is not just staffing. Staffing yeah. is, we could spend an hour just talking about staffing yeah. and personnel availability. But the other component to that in growth mode is supply chain issues. Yeah. You know, Brazilian wings is an example. Good luck getting them in this case at this time, right? So you're having to pivot and make decisions on product, supply chains availability, trucking issues. There's so many things out there that are influencing our industry and we're doing everything we can, Tommy, not to pass this expense onto the guest. Yeah, it, 
I know this is such an unprecedented time, and and I feel like the governments are are hampering us more than they're helping us in a lot of ways. Like they think they're helping, or they're I don't know what they think they're doing. But you know, I mean, we have we've had giant deals stall because they're like we can't test your software right now because literally our area managers are driving U-Hauls to distribution centers and picking up pizza crusts and delivering them to the stores because the distributors can't get drivers. You know what I mean? Like we're at, like, if you look at Mazo's hierarchy of needs from a restaurant industry perspective, we're at level one, right? Which yeah. is uh, water and air. Like that's where we're sitting in a lot of cases. And well, oh, sorry, buddy. I apologize. No, no, go on. Yeah. Well, it, it's interesting too, because it's not just us. You see it in the trades. Oh right? yeah. And we, we would have had, we should have had four restaurants already open with the last, the most recent restaurant should have been open end of August. Um, first one in April, going into May, then June, and then August in that order. And uh, one of the locations that we were set to open in January didn't open until almost May. And, and so when you look at supply chain issues with lumber or steel or even labor, some of the issues that you're dealing with from a COVID perspective is you're only allowed, trades are only allowed to be on, on property at certain times, some GCs are, are saying, I can't have crossover of trades with plumbers and electricians and carpenters because there's too much overlap and I can't guarantee two meter distancing. So it depends on the province that you're working in and what those stipulations are, but you're dealing, you're right. It's unprecedented. You're dealing with supply chain issues, lumber. It's kind of, I don't know if I could say this, but it's a podcast. So I'm going to say it anyway, all cartoon. Uh, this was a couple of months back where it was a kilo of cocaine and in the middle of it was a was a piece of wood was lumber and they're smuggling lumber <laughs> border in and you know in, in kilos of cocaine because it's so much more uh, valuable <laughs> to sustain growth. like you know the home home building is just almost stopped and we were looking to build a house here in canada um this this next year and our advisors like pete if you can find a property to buy buy if you want to build the length of time to get it here and the cost of the goods and the trades availability is it's you might even price yourself out it's like wow, wow. that's interesting yeah it, it's such a weird time yeah it well, is yeah, a weird time some of our, and tell me some of our deals that we've we've done i mean you we, we i'm telling you our, our our development team is unbelievably amazing and you know you, you negotiate a deal a little bit different in, in every one, but you, you always try to get that three to six month, you know, it, whether you're able to negotiate free rent, increase in TI dollars, um, you're, you you try to just figure out the best way that allows your business to get up and going, start to normalize quickly. Our goal is really to normalize most of our restaurants within three months ideally to normalize cost of goods and labor within the first six weeks. And depending on the size of the building, we're, we're doing a pretty good job of being able to do that. If you're able to normalize your restaurant in six to eight weeks at 700 capacity, right? The you're, you're making money quicker, right? The execution gets better faster. There's so many benefits of normalizing faster, but if you're already delayed in an opening three to four months, that three to six month free rent is pushed it's they don't just go well we'll tack that on the end like, yeah no 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 like now you have four weeks or now you have two weeks or in some cases now you don't have any yeah we're gonna you know rent starts at turnover at, at this point so 
there's there's just a tremendous investment made on our side but it ends up being a tremendous expense at the end of the day when you're not able to capitalize on on some of those and take advantage of some of those opportunities so yeah it's across the board buddy and i think you know in, in the industry I, I would have expected to be honest with you that i think i thought that our industry would be a little bit further down the recovery path than we are right now um and it's a double-edged sword because i think you know we've had to endure expenses that governments are not even taking into consideration or acknowledging for example when you're going through ppe is one thing yeah and there's, there is an expense to ppe but if you can't guarantee two meter distancing and if you do guarantee two meter distancing your capacity is decreased okay and so if you don't want to decrease capacity you have to have physical barriers we spent over half a million dollars in plexiglass okay. just in solid plexi and that expense isn't on the back end. Oh, we're going to give you a tax subsidy or allow you to, to adjust for that. No, it's not an option. We just have to absorb it. And so in order for us just to keep the doors open and keep people employed, we've had to incur expenses that we're not passing on to the guests. And I think it, at some point as an ownership group, you have to make a decision of how, how much do we want to absorb? What's the right number? Sure. Well, let me ask you this. Could you amortize the plexiglass's value down and try to write it off on your taxes? Mm-mm. Cost to do a business, buddy. Yeah. We're no us to do that. That's a decision that we made. And, and it's a little bit different. So I, I just recently was made aware that you have to wear eyewear, protective eyewear, if you're serving <laughs> in, in Ontario. <laughs> yeah. And I'm just thinking, <laughs> Now, I don't I don't wear glasses, but a lot of my friends wear glasses. A lot of people I know wear glasses. And when they're wearing glasses with a mask on, their glasses fog up. It's just yeah, crazy. it's the worst, dude. It's just It sucks so bad. Trust me. So I want you to just think about this for a second. You're working in a restaurant and you're up and down stairs. And again, this on the second level with our patios, upstairs bar, upstairs dining room, our staff is humping it all day long. And I tell my wife, it's funny. I said, I go to a new store opening. And it's one of our newer builds. Some of our builds are three levels in this case, right? We just opened a restaurant in Township in Calgary, three levels. And after after five days, I just told my wife, I was like, honey, I, I love going to openings, but I'm going to have an ass like a 25-year-old because I'm running <laughs> stairs all day long. I couldn't imagine running stairs with a mask and goggles on or protective eyewear fogging up. It, there becomes, it becomes almost... And I hate to use this phrase, Tommy, as it almost becomes we have to be mindful of a hostile work environment because you have you have your team, your team members in the back of the house that are working over a 450 to 550 temp grill, 350 degree fryers, pizza ovens or impingers that are three levels. You're constantly working in tight environments and heat and you're having to wear a mask. And, and that is where you just see staff just go, my chest is, you know, (laughs) there are more issues there and that component. And, 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 and so that's just trying to be mindful of things like that. Well, these glasses are 565 a piece and, and I have 60 servers. So again, it's another expense on the PPE side that we, that we incur and don't pass on. And, and I, I do think you've got to be very careful. Well, in this landscape of taking price and increasing menu price point at this point. Well, okay. So I totally agree. I, so that just sounds stupid to me. 
Like, I'm sorry, Ontario's government, but you guys are a bunch of idiots. Like, I want to see this. Like, you can't even get realistic mask science out of anybody, but we all basically wear the masks to really keep your germs close to your face. I think that's all that they really do is they keep me from coughing spit into your face. But if you're going to make people wear masks, then they have to wear eye goggles when they're just serving foods. Ridiculous. Like, it's just so dumb. Yeah, this thing is a gigantic scam that, like, I think twenty people made trillions of dollars off of, and the rest of us are just taking it in the booty. Um, okay, so you actually answered a bunch of questions, so I'm gonna go through and just like ask them really quickly. So we yeah. know the big project you're working on right now, which is you're you're in growth mode, right? So you yeah. wanted to get to 200 restaurants. Where are you at today? So we're we just we're at 39 corporate. Okay franchise restaurants. Um, actually, technically we're 40 with Banquet in Fort McMurray, but uh, yeah, we're at 40 total um, and we still have 14 to go. So hopefully we'll be at 54 by end of 2022. Cool. Yeah. And then, you know, what'll happen is, is that as you guys get that, that 54, you'll be able to build out your training team and your opening teams up. And then you'll just get to a point where you'll be able to simultaneously open like two at a two a month or whatever, you know, and, and it'll just start to like, you know, explode, <laughs> um, which is cool. Uh, okay. What is the one thing in the industry or your business that's keeping you up at night? Uh, it, well, it's, it's, it's very easy. Um, well, there are a couple of things. They, they keep me up at night. Um, and I want to go back to when I, I first joined the organization. I, we met with the board and we actually, Banquet is a, it's just a massive property, three levels, bowling in the basement. We actually have, we have a prices right wheel in the main dining room. And it's <laughs> been it for swag or, you know, it's a contest. It's, it's actually pretty cool. Um, but we have probably one of the nicest patios in North America up in Fort McMurray that overlooks that river valley and it's just beautiful and amazing um and you really get a good four or five months that you can enjoy it before you get down to minus 35 and, and sure. then that's all down but we met with the board of directors and and they knew the goal of bringing me on and, and it was fine and, and they said you know question for you is like what what have you seen so you've been here for three months what have you seen and i said well i think for us our main goal is that we have to first and foremost, we have to set the infrastructure for growth. And that means we have to look at our accounting practices, the software that we're using. Um, do we have at this point in this stage, do we have the departments to support? Yeah. Uh, do we need to take a really hard look at our succession planning and say, you know, if we're going to grow 14 restaurants, we need to consider just a new store opening department. Someone that is a, someone that is a point person or a lead that their whole job is to organize this and because everybody takes a little bit cross departmental yeah. depending construction to you know purchasing and acquisition licensing etc and training and everybody has a little bit and so I, I think when i look at what keeps me up at night it's those things the the establishment of infrastructure to allow us to do and grow and expand on our expo tech initiative because expo tech even with tablets you're able to run less servers Right. Yeah, and so not wasting time walking to the register bank and coming back. So you could put a five or six tables on it. 100%. So I never, my staff never leaves the floor. Yeah. And you have support staff that are running drinks. So the coolest thing is to be at a table, you order your drinks and you're having a conversation. She hasn't left the table and the drink show up. Yeah. That's wonderful. And 
not, that's one side. On the other side is guess what just happened? Like you're going to get that extra round in yep. at the end of the meal because it's that fast speed. And look, I tell my son this in hockey all the time, speed kills. It's yep. no different in our industry. Speed kills, particularly if you're in casual dining, upper, you know, upscale casual dining and, and fine dining is a little bit different scenario, different experience for sure. But staffing, I, I think infrastructure is one. The other thing is staffing. And that is that is a reality that with in Canada and CERB, people are going, you know, I, I'm working three shifts a week or four shifts a week and I'm I'm making $15 an hour here in Alberta. And that's that's great and all. But, it, you know, 50 percent of it's getting taxed or whatever that percentage is for them. And then so my tips are about, yay, you know, I might make thirty five hundred bucks a month, but for two grand, I don't have to do anything. Yeah, I'm going to take two grand. And then they start looking at, do I really want, you know, working in a restaurant, particularly in a high volume restaurant, if you're doing, you know, if, if you're doing 5.8, 6.2, 7.5 million, you know, and in your AUV within the organization is about 5.8, that you're busy, you're humping, right? And it's like, is it really worth it? And so people are reconsidering, number one, it's cash in hand. And, and I think the landscape's changed. But if you're still getting subsidies on that side, do you really want to do it? And a lot of people are opting out and, and that's a void. And, and so if we have an aggressive growth model, the biggest, the biggest challenge, and I learned this working at Planet Hollywood when I was in, in Key West there for a bit, you can expand so fast that you outgrow your ability to expand. Um, yep. And also it's hard to make those infrastructure investments because they don't pay dividends for six months to a year. And when I say infrastructure, I mean, in this case would be your new store opening team. Like, you know, you're, cause you're not going to, you're going to get a director and then that guy's going to go, Hey, I need six other people just to help me get this department spun up. And now you just, you just put a, you know, 750 to a million dollars of cost in your organization that you never had before. And you're like, ouch. But yet if you don't have the systems in place, you can't scale. I mean, and you see that with Chipotle, right? Chipotle for the first, couple of years of their big growth right up to 500 stores they were just promoting from within it was like a career path and yeah. they had everybody there and then all of a sudden they just ramped up to a point where they couldn't literally promote internal people quickly enough and at the same time so they had to start going out of the organization which diluted the culture but their their culture was like we don't need all the traditional restaurant systems we don't need checklists and all that kind of stuff right because we're chipotle we're going to hire the right people and put them in the right jobs and they're going to do great and that was fine when they all came through chipotle but then when you started bringing people in from village in and all these other companies and you just started bringing in managers that were used to coming from a systems orientation and then next thing you know you have 2015 and massive food safety problems you know what i mean like they yeah. outgrew their ability to grow responsibly and and you know you can't scale without systems period so when those systems could be like a human department or it could be computers whatever it is but you know yeah well it's it's interesting you brought up some really good points there too and you know we were in our our chipotle was uh one of the locations in powell uh that that uh, chipotle had issues with and you know, I've, I've been, unfortunately, there are concepts out there that are no longer there anymore. Chi-Chi's is no longer around for a reason. And yeah. I think if, if when you start making people sick or heaven forbid, people pass because of what they consumed in your restaurant, 
I don't think there's anything more intimate than what we do because what we do and create and produce becomes a part of a person. They consume it. And if you don't take that serious, you're in the wrong industry, my friend. And from a staffing perspective, our leverage point for our organization is our culture. And you talk about diluting that culture as you expand and bring people in from the outside. We are heavy, heavy internal growth and heavy, heavy development path. Uh, and I've been working on that for the last two and a half years being here. But it was that way before I got here. Like <laughs> you see the you see our senior leadership team, they were all running restaurants five and 10 years ago. Sure. You know, uh, they, they didn't go to Harvard. They didn't go to Princeton Business School. You know, they they're just like hard knocks, baby. That's how I got here. And but but they're able to identify people that understand culturally what we're trying to create. And really from a seat from our certified training team, that is even more important, right? Because those are the guys that are teaching the new team members what we're about, why we're different, how we execute and our philosophy and our core values. And so as you expand, that's my biggest fear is do we, are we expanding too fast? Are we expanding beyond our capability of backfilling and insulating our culture? Systems and processes, look, those are always going to change. Those are always going to be there. You open a restaurant, you met a restaurant, you close a restaurant the same way. You do inventory this way, you, you know, all of those components, that's the easy stuff. The hard stuff is how do you teach somebody to create an experience? Yeah. Make personal connections. That's, that's the hard part, right? And with less staff, you've really got to get, have to get creative on how you want to do that. Right. And it's kind of funny. You, you, you look at the staffing pool is that much shallower and you're going, yeah, but we're looking for that one critical type of person. And you're like, mm, probably not going to happen. <laughs> we need to, we, we probably need to change the way in which we hire. We have to change the way in which we onboard. And that's that collective measure. When I talk about infrastructure, it's not just our accounting systems, right? It's not going away from QuickBooks. Yeah. That. Like that's one thing. And by the way, it's a huge project too when you do that. But the big problem is, or the big challenge is, how do we grow at the level we want to grow and insulate that culture and not sacrifice one one component? So, so, and I, I, I sometimes repeat myself on multiple podcasts because uh, you know that's what happens. But when I went to University of Denver Hotel Restaurant School in 1992. Mm -hmm. We had the intro to hospitality management class. The dean of the school ended up being a buddy of mine uh, after afterwards. Was in there and he's like, you know, the restaurant industry is really making big strides, right? Like, you know, we no longer are the days we're going to work 80 hours a week. You're going to work 40 to 60 hours a week, you know? Yeah. And, um, and, and I do think, because I was also talking to a buddy of mine who used to be, who was the CEO that grew rock bottom uh, and whatnot. Yeah in the 90s uh and i'm starting with him and the thing is a lot of people are leaving the industry a because they lost their jobs during covid right and so then they were like they were the uh, you know you know to lose your job in covid when you already had all this uncertainty of what covid was going to be and then to lose your your job on top of it was such like a double like gut punch you know what i mean and so a lot of people left the industry, right? Obviously, the governments are paying people to stay at home right now, which is stupid. They should stop. And that should hopefully be stopping soon. But I do think what's going to have to happen is there are certain aspects of working in restaurants that is hard. Like you said, you got to run up and down three sets of stairs 50 times if you're a food runner with a giant tray on your shoulder with, you know, 40 or 50 pounds of plates. That's hard, right? 
cooking on the line is hard. Uh, you're greasy, you're smelly, you're tired, you know, and you know, just our industry, you're on your feet, you're moving. There's a lot of jobs like sit down, relax, kick back, take calls in your house, whatever it is. And so like, so there's a lot of negatives to being running a restaurant, but there's also a ton of positives as well. And so when you're talking about culture, the industry has to get better at explaining what our benefits are to working in these businesses. The companies have to get better and we've got to start to get really, really creative. People should be able to make a living working in a restaurant at 40 hours a week. And I don't know how you do that, you know, but it, it needs to be something that can be done. You know what I mean? And it needs, or you're never going to have people like, cause you know, people, there are people that don't want to sit at a desk. They don't want to be on a computer. They like to talk to people. They need the freedom because they have a band or like I was a stand-up comedian or, you know, they need the freedom to go do their passion project, right? Whatever that might be, go to school, but they need to be able to come make a living, you know, and, and be able to do it in, in a great way. So I do think we have to, as an industry, really focus on what are the cultures we're creating in these brands and in, in these individual stores, you know? And by the way, I'm another big point. You can't train culture. Take all your culture training and throw it out the window because that's a retarded waste of time and nobody believes it. You have to, you have to live culture, right? You live culture in pre-shift meetings and actually having a manager that appreciate you and all that stuff. So I do think we, it's a wake up call for this industry. If you want to have people and not robots working in these restaurants, then we have got to figure out a way for people to have a living working with us and, and grow those cultures, you know, because yeah no go ahead no that's it I, I, I'm, <laughs> yeah. you're like no i'm all right. I'm getting off my soapbox now i'm just yeah, yeah exactly I, I i you know you, you made you, you said five really important things in in your statement there tommy and listen i i'm a i'm a case in point of being able to make a living in the industry and our ceo and owner uh, mike wheeler started with this, he was a dishwasher yeah a former um, mentor of mine, his name is George Barton, who worked with TJ Fridays there for a while with, with him and came up underneath George. Jo George started the same way. These guys started in the industry as dishwashers and they're executive EPs, CEOs and owners. And it's it's an amazing business. And if you're a social butterfly, uh, if 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 you like that aspect of it, you're exactly right. And, and I, I want to go back to a statement that I made earlier is that, you know, you're you really have to be mindful of onboarding because you you're right you you hire culture right you, you that person has you're looking for that personality trait it's kind of hard you don't you don't teach character yeah right you, you don't teach ethics you don't you don't teach that component uh you have to come to the table with character and values it's hard to teach that but i will say 30 32 years i've been in this industry in multiple facets in the industry and it was the right choice for me it's not the right choice for everybody but i, I sent a message out to my entire alberta uh, management teams this morning because there's something that needs to be understood with that's going on in the industry and particularly in canada with the passport systems people are taking and our guest base are taking offense and and taking one side or the other with how this is being processed within our, our government systems and unfortunately, it's the businesses that are bearing the burden of ensuring these things 
are implemented. You know, we're bearing the burden of enforcement. And when you look at a 17 or 18 year old host and she has to listen to somebody say, I've been vaccinated or I haven't been vaccinated, you go through the questions and they take offense to it. That is a different dynamic that the industry has not had to deal with. And it's, it's tough. It's really, really tough. And so I think explaining the why of what, what we do as an organization and as a business, as an industry is just as important as explaining what the directive is. And that was my message to the team is that we'll, we'll try to equip you with as much as we can to try to eliminate some of this pressure that they're, they're seeing. We've never seen it in this industry, but I will tell you this, it's a phenomenal industry to be in and you can make a hell of a living, have a home, a, amazing quality of life doing what we do and um I, I couldn't imagine doing anything different oh no i totally agree i mean it's one of the few industries where you don't have to have a degree to be successful i would hire a i would hire a successful mcdonald's shift manager over a degreed person any day of the week to manage people because that mcdonald's shift manager who keeps everyone showing up and working fast has got better people skills then you could learn, you know, in 50 college classes, you know, I mean, you can't teach that being able to treat people well and, and appreciate what they do and make them feel special so that they show up again when, you know, I mean, one of the biggest problems in managing a restaurant are just no calls, no shows, you know what I mean? So yeah, when you yeah. can treat people right and they come back every day, you're like, woohoo, you got a winner there. Um, yeah. Well, people don't work for organizations. People work for people. Yep. And it's it's the same concept of people don't lead organizations, people lead people. And when you you know under, having leadership that understands that they're worth their weight in gold, they really are. It's the the cost of replacing somebody that gets that innately is, <laughs> I think, I, for us just to recruit, just to recruit upper level management, and that's above store level some of the recruiting fees are north of twenty twenty five thousand dollars if you're recruiting an executive it could be even higher than that and so what's the cost of training and all that process relocation you've got to think of everything and yeah it's you ask what keeps me up at night that's it buddy it's how well we're taking care of our people how we're insulating our culture and how do we navigate this landscape when in most cases in the landscape we don't we really don't have a lot of control of what's being imposed on us with regards to public health work. Yeah. So let me ask you this. Do you guys use like a personality screen in your uh, application process to try to find people that are culturally fit for you? No, I mean, I've, I have in the past. Uh, this is it's not something that we're we're looking at now. I think the bigger that you get, though, <laughs> The larger you get, the, the more you're trying to duplicate what you do. And um, we're still, in my opinion, we're still a fairly small organization. So there's only a, probably two or three people that are in the decision-making process. I think the larger that we get and expand and even even expand inside our outside of our umbrella. And, and that could be in the form of, you know, acquisitions or something outside of the industry that we bring in. It's certainly something we're going to have to take a look at for sure. But we've used Patrix in the past and um, some other systems that I, I think could be helpful. It's really a guide at the end of the day, um, I think. But um, yeah, we don't use them. Sure. Yeah, I, I wonder. I always like the personality 
tests. I always thought they were worth doing, especially if you own them and you don't have to pay per test, you know, you can just yeah. buy the test yeah. one time and use it across the organization. And I'm not saying that you discriminate on any kind of personality type, but it's just good to kind of know what you got and then put a good mix of different people in each restaurant so they balance each other out. You, you got a super analytical guy, maybe you need a little bit more of a creative or something like that just to kind of balance out the, you know, like I have a bunch of engineers in my family and sometimes you just don't even want to talk to them because you're like, I'm not going to be as specific as you need me to be on this. I'm talking in generalities. Um, that's, that's funny though. I mean, you always have to decide whose party you want to go to. You know, exactly. that's one of the things we ask is, you know, we're one of our core values is to be the place people want to be. And when we look at our leadership teams, it's, you know, would you go to Tommy's party? Yeah. And the answer is, mm, I've been to Tommy's party and I left. Yeah. <laughs> you, like yeah it's i'm not sure that that that's going to be the right fit for us but I, I do think that we look at some of the assessments um from a development track um identifying certain types whether you're high d low a whatever that looks like it helps it helps leadership understand how to make correlation and connection with some of the people we already have in the organization but as a front run we don't we don't typically look at that no sure all right, so the question is what, and I think you've already answered it, so you can just give a one word answer and we'll move on. But uh, what do you think is the most important thing in running a successful restaurant company? Listen, I, I'm, I'm, I've been a part of just phenomenal cultures. Culture is, is number one, number one, because it's what differentiates you from the competition, right? Um, you look at, at organizations that have rock, rock solid cultures um, and, and they're successful because they're not going to compromise on what they identify as important and what it is, you know, every, every brand in and of itself has something to say and they have something to put out there. Some brands are successful because they, they just execute better than others or they just have a better message than others. I, I think for, to answer that question, that's the differentiator for us. We serve Bud Light, okay? I'll put it to you this way. All of our competitors serve Bud Light. Why is my Bud Light better than your Bud Light? Why are my wings better than your wings? You can get a burger here, a burger there. What's the difference? You can watch the game in your place or you can watch the game in my place. What's the difference? What's the difference? It's, it's, it's environment, it's experience. And experience, vibe, environment, energy, all of that is cultivated by one component. And obviously that's, you know, I was told earlier on in my career, there, there are three rules to business, okay? The first rule of business is who's running your business. The second rule of business is who's running your business. And tell me the third rule of business is who's running your business. And, and you look at our industry and you look at the multiple levels and you say, okay, well, Number one, who's running your business from an exec senior leadership team? There's one. Who's running your business? That's your management team in your business. And then who's running your business? That's the hourly staff that are actually on the front line. And, and if you take serious each one of those positions and analyze who are in those positions running your business, that, that really is that I found is one of the one of the keys to success in organizations. Fridays did it really, really well. You celebrate, you have a party every day is Friday. In, in our component, we have the luxury of being a sports bar. And, you know, when Monday night, Thursday night, and Sunday football is on, 
It's great. College football Saturday, awesome. And we just kicked off hockey season. And so we have a lot of reasons for you to come see us, right? But every one of our competitors have TVs and serve pretty close to the same product. So I think that's the biggest differentiator, buddy. Yeah, and that's what everyone said, which is like, it's interesting. It's culture. And I would suggest that it's not only the front of the house culture, but it's also, I would suggest that it's a numbers, data-driven, systems-driven culture as well. Absolutely, the front of the house has to be, you know, you have to have a fun, great environment, got to hire, you know, nice, good people that know the menu and, and provide that service. But there's a lot of great restaurants that provide a lot of great service, and they have zero systems. They have the great people working, but they have no systems, and they struggle to make a, month, a penny. You know what I mean? And so when we say culture – it really is a high performing service based systems based culture i think is probably the most important thing cuz if you don't have the systems you don't have them you know if you don't know what you're doing you don't can't create consistency between locations you know it, it doesn't matter how good your servers are you know what i mean if the wings are raw or they don't you know like yeah there's other you know it's just I think you're spot on there too, and 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 that's where that that's where someone in my position or within our executive team that we're very aware of, and we we constantly are looking for new and innovative ways to really help insulate margin as much as culture. And it's it's it is kind of funny. We opened Oshawa, and we we had a lot of horsepower there. I mean, we had the first restaurant in Ontario, so. All of us, the entire teams out there, and I just kind of looked around. I was like, "We might do thirty-five thousand dollars today, but I think we got about forty-two thousand in salary here today." So, <laughs> at the end of the day, we can't we can't make great sales and this still over the bank money. That's uh, that's not a good business model. Absolutely, absolutely. Okay, so we're at the end of this thing. Uh, last question: Give me a war story. Oh. You know, I've, I've been funny, cringeworthy. You go, can be any brand. Don't care if you don't want to mention the name of the business. I'm good with that too. I just want a good story. <laughs> well, yeah. Okay. I'll tell you, I'll tell you a funny, this is a, a kind of an amusing story. I, I think from a, from a, a cringeworthy story is, is you never want to be in a situation in your business where there's loss of life. And you know, a cringeworthy story would be, you know, somebody that is um, taking it upon themselves to make decisions in your business that puts their lives or others at risk. And and without getting too specific, unfortunately, in my career, I've had to be a part of of instances where uh, the, the those things have occurred, and it's it's always a tough situation. When you're getting a call at two or three in the morning saying you know we had a guest in and uh here's what happened and and they didn't make it because you take that personally you're always assessing what could we have done different did we was it was it something that we did or was it a personal decision that that someone makes and then the impact it has on your on your team to hell with reputation in that regard it's what impacts does it what impact does that have on your team on the same note um, I remember we opened, <laughs> we opened banquet uh, in Fort McMurray, and it was our l largest restaurant. 
Um, and I'd been with the company for about three months. I started mid-March and this is June. Um, and so I, I, I started about the 11th and we opened around the 6th. So about four weeks, six weeks before we opened, I, I was hired on originally as the senior vice president of the Canadian Brew House. And I, I wasn't really aware of, of the banquet in, in this month, but about a month and a half in, I was approached and said, hey, we'd really kind of like you to take on the COO role and, and take over the opening of Banquet. I was like, okay, great. What's Banquet? And we're all sitting around the table like, well, it's kind of this concept, but it's kind of this. And we're, the goal is to do this, but I think, you know, we're, we're, we're really kind of going after this. And I was like, we might as well put a dartboard up there. We, we, we're not really, like, we have a ton of cool stuff, but we're not really clear on what it is that we're trying to be. Right, and what we really want to do, and essentially, it's more about kind of a gastro pub feel. When you say a dive bar, it's premium drinks and and top shelf cocktails and a really cool vibe, a bit of a retro '80s kind of vibe, with bowling and activities and you know huge building and pool and video games and wandering and dancing and all this other DJs and all this other stuff. Uh, and so it's kind of like a playground for adolescents, essentially. But I remember. I met one of the um, one of our, our partners in, in our concepts down in, in Calgary. Super great guy. He's about 6'3", 6'4", just this big teddy bear of a guy. Just so awesome. Loved him. You sit down. He's the kind of guy you want to hang out with. He's the kind of guy that you want to have a beer with and, and kind of soft stories. But he's just a really, really, really great guy, cool guy. Soft-spoken, doesn't say much. You know, he does more than he says in that regard. And I remember we had, this is at two o'clock in the morning, 2.15 in the morning, and the place is absolutely packed, all three levels. And I see this guy, never seen this side, but he actually stands up, hands out, and is like, all right, everybody get out, let's move. And he just starts massively, like, just corralling all these people. I mean, look, this is Fort McMurray. These are the oil fields. And so you've got some big boys up there, and he just, I saw another side of him that I'd never seen. And it was kind of funny because we did, I think we did a million 30 that first month in revenue. Um, but, but I think it cost us like a million two <laughs> to do the yeah. million. But it's, it's one of those learning experiences, A, in the business side of it, but, but culturally the vibe and, and everybody that we dealt with was just such an amazing experience. And trying to duplicate that, but I, I'll just never forget that. You never you never know what someone's gonna do when they're pushed to that limit where they, they're like, okay, I've, I'm done. I've had enough, everybody, you're out. And so, yeah, that was, a, that was an interesting one. A ton of stories <laughs> to tell you, but that's probably one of the more recent ones for sure. Ah, that's great, man. Well, Peter, uh, thank you so much for being on the show today. I really appreciate you taking the time out of your busy schedule to come and uh, share your experiences on the podcast. Um, one, one note I'm going to put out there for everybody. We're going to start releasing on Wednesdays. So just look for the new episodes on Wednesdays. Okay. And Peter appreciate it. I'll put uh, links into your guys's website, especially your career page. So if anyone who's up in Canada is listening and they want to look for a great job with a great culture, then they can come and check you guys out. Absolutely. Well, Tommy, I appreciate the time, buddy. It's been a pleasure. And you know, I always love talking about the industry and and uh, care deeply for it and and uh, anything we can do to help, uh, we're we're always there. But uh, it's been a pleasure, buddy. I, I appreciate it. Bye, guys.